This morning, I'm going to uh, remind you of a few things, hopefully. At the beginning of this year, going into Authentic Community, we spent some significant time talking around the importance of the internal change in your life being that which leads us into all of these other topics we've been talking about and will talk about. And it's so easy to go, yeah, that was then, but now let's get to the meat. If you don't remember what the real meat is of the internal things going on in our lives, who Christ is in our lives, the loving one another, the part that places first, as we seek his kingdom first, we can lose our way. So that's where we're kind of heading back today through the use of a narrative in the Old Testament. Let's pray as we dig into this together. God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for a time to gather as your people in your city of San Francisco. God, I pray your word would be heard clearly. God, I pray that the truth that you have for us this morning would not return void, but would be that which enlightens us, moves us, changes us, so that the things that we think are big really are small to you. God, may we find a peace that goes beyond comprehension. In your name, amen. One of the struggles that Jesus was facing in his humanity was being a prophet in his own town. When he would stand up and say things like, this is what God's word says, they would say things like, we knew you as a young boy, what can you say to change us? You're just from Nazareth. One of those times in the book of Luke, it's recorded as they're giving him pushback and saying, how could you say something of substance to us? We've always known you. It says this, Luke 4, 24 to 28. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there are many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the sky was shut up for three years and six months, meaning there was a drought during that time, when a great famine came all over the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Siddim, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And all in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. For us, this doesn't seem like much, but what Jesus is saying, one of your fathers of faith, even then, the people around him were numb to the power of God in him. Because they saw him as common. They didn't see what was inside of him to the point where there was lepers in the land and it was only an outsider who became healed. I often like to think that as time was unfolding and Jesus was sitting next to his father knowing one day he'd be in human form, that he would go, oh, I'm going to use that one when I come. Because he's pulling back some 800 plus years, 830 years, and pointing to a man that they knew. And they were so enraged, if you read that scripture, it says they brought him to a cliff to throw him over and kill him. But the beauty of the writing says, but Jesus just walked through the crowd and left them. Because he's like, it ain't my time. It will be my time, but I say when it's my time, not you. Naaman. I want to pull us back to 2 Kings chapter 5. 
and tell you the story of Naaman, and I have to pace myself because it's a lot here, and there's a lot for you to discover. So there's more than what I can address, but this story that Jesus points out as his reference point to the people missing who God is, I think, can remind us of the place each day we need to be in our heart to handle relationships well, to handle the struggles of life really well. If you have your Bible, I encourage you to turn to 2 Kings chapter 5 or remind you to read it again later as we go through this. I'm going to read sections, stop, talk about it, and work our way through it. We're going to let God's Word be our guide today, and I'm not even going to ask your permission for that. 2 Kings 5.1 says this, Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Okay, we're going to stop already. Verse 1. Naaman. Naaman in Hebrew, his reference as a great man would be ish, would be man, gadol, would be great. It was more than just saying, oh, he's a good guy. He was literally seen when he walked around town as, wait, that's Naaman. He's an ish gadol. He is a great man. He has done great things. And in verse 1, it sets up an issue. There's a but. But he had leprosy, which means he was a masera, which means he was also an outcast. Not to the extent of some who had leprosy, they had to live in isolation. Because we see in, this, in the narrative, there's people around him. But he had some form of leprosy that was contagious. So here's a man, a great man, an Ishgadol, a man that would stop you in your tracks when you saw him. It would be like, here's a celebrity sighting. But he was also an outcast. The third thing to throw in there just for fun is that he didn't live in Israel. His God was not Yahweh, but the writer says Yahweh showed him favor, even though he had no idea. So here's a guy, Ishgadol, an outcast who God used and he had no idea and he wasn't even a believer yet. So for those who are putting limits on who God can use, I'm blowing them up right now. Ishgadol, famous in the eyes of man, outcast, God still used him. 2 Kings 5 verse 2, moving on. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who was in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. Aram is at war with Israel. They go in and part of what they did, whether they found this girl uh, abandoned by her parents or she was an orphan, we don't really know, but she, they took her in and she's now serving in a land that is not her own. God uses this girl 
to speak truth in the midst of controversy. She had every reason in the world to say like, why would I want to help this guy? He's not my friend, but she found love for him. And she said, if only Naaman could go back to this prophet, because she did not forget. But to get a brief idea, if you're like, I'm not really familiar with the land, there's a very, very kind of clean map I can show you. So Aram, where the king is from, is now Syria. It's up in the northern region. Damascus is the capital of Aram at that time. If you move down, you see the Sea of Galilee, then the Jordan River. Jerusalem, where the Israel king is, is stored up. That's where he is at that time. There's the Dead Sea down below, Bethlehem, where you see where Jesus was born. And the significant part of where the story takes place is in a land called Samaria. It's not in the kingdom. It's not in the foreign land. It's in this section of place that later in the storyline in Jesus' day would be a place that they avoided at all costs. And yet that's where the prophet lived. In Aram, their god is uh, Ramon, Ramon. It's like the god of the thunder, the harvest. He later becomes what a lot of people call Zeus. Uh, their king at the time, his name was Ben-Hadad. Hadad also means Ramon. So basically, Ben is, means son. So the name of this king that Naaman served was the son of Ramon. Like he was really in to this other God. Israel, their God is Yahweh, the Lord that we reference. Um, their king was Jehoram, and we'll meet him in a second. So a reminder, Naaman wants to go get healed. His king who he serves, who he's super close with, says, I will send a letter to the king of Israel to kind of do that political thing. You bring a bunch of money with you because that's what we do, right? Like, I, if I want God to help me, I better bring something myself. We'll see how that works out. So the king receives this letter in verse 7, says this. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, now get, just try to picture this. As soon as he read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of leprosy? See how he was trying to pick a coral with me? Like less caffeine, brother. Something. Like it's this instant reaction. Like why is he picking on me? Let's pull back. The king who worshipped Ramon had more faith in what this prophet could do than the king who served Yahweh. Because when we look at issues through our human lens and forget who it is that we are serving and the king we are following, it is easy to get derailed, is it not? Isn't it easy to go, well, I didn't do that, or it's not my fault, or why are you trying to do that to me, versus... Wow, what a blessing. This man from a foreign land is coming to us for healing. No, that king flipped out. I don't know how else to say it. That's the literal meaning, flipped out. Verse 8. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, I don't know how long that took and why that was the message. But, you know, like it wasn't Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all that. But eventually it got from Jerusalem to Samaria. Dude, the king tore his robes. It was crazy. He's like a nut. But you might want to help out here. So when Elisha, the man of God, heard, that's 
Yes. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to see me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel, a prophet, a conduit, someone who is on a first-name basis with God, a consistent communication with God. There is no barrier between him and God. Kind of sounds like something that Jesus has done for us. We'll get there. Have the man come to see me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and his chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Stay with me. Elisha's living in Samaria. He's a prophet. He's not probably killing it financially. It's not like he's, he's probably very, very humble, little house, little place of living. Naaman shows up with what? His people. His chariots, his horses. Can you picture this? A little house in the middle of like this desert land and all of a sudden these chariots and horses around him. Everything that represents power, legitimacy, war. And he's like, I am here to get the stuff. I am trying to impress you with who I am. Naaman. That's how we saw that he got stuff done, right? He's used to getting stuff done by his, his standing with the king, by being an Ishkadol. We would say like he started to read his own press clippings. He started to look at his paycheck as some kind of validity for who he was, his education, his smarts, his ability to handle a conversation really, really well and come out the other side always well because if he wasn't winning, he probably just would say, I'm an Ishkadol. Who are you? Because we can drift into that so easily, but he stands outside the prophet's house in little old Samaria with his chariots and his horses. And verse 10 tells us this. Elisha sent a messenger to him. Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. Elisha do you catch what's happening here? He is so awesome. <laughs> Little house. There's chariots and horses and like, I'm here to be healed. And what does Elisha do? Elisha doesn't even get up from his recliner. <laughs> I'm not sure what a recliner would have looked like at that time. But he's like, he tells his helper, go tell him to do this. Because Elisha knew the power wasn't in him. The power was Yahweh. Right? Like, it's not about what I can do. It's about what's in me. So he says, go tell him to go wash himself in the Jordan. Now, if that was you, you had a huge need in your life. You're like, dude, this is huge. And you set an appointment with one of us. You say, hey, Dale, can I come talk to you? And when you come, I just hand you a note and go, oh, just do this. Some of you might be like, oh, okay. Most of you be like, wait, I got off work. I set a time to come. I want to talk. Like, if you're not available, where's Dave? And I'd be like, I don't know. He's in Kauai right now. You got to settle for me. That's a bigger story. But, like, I want face-to-face -face communication here. Because we think there's a power. When we see ourselves as the strength, we're looking for the strength in another person. 
if you're wondering, am I relying on my own strength? What are you more impressed with? Is it the appearance and strength of another person? Then you yourself are relying on strength. But if it's like, I want to see what God is doing in that person, that's a clue for you that where you find the greater strength. I have to see that all the time. Am I more impressed with what a person can do than what God is doing through them? Naaman has a chance here to respond well or not well. Let me give you a hint. Not so well. Verse 11. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord as God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. He had in his mind, man, this is going to be huge. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned off and went away in a rage. And this is so weird because it's so unlike us. <laughs> right? Because he's like, I want an event. I want a big moment. Because God, if you give me a big moment, I'll make a deal with you. I'll tell everybody about the big moment. And then you'll be known. But really, we want the big moment because we want to feel like we're, with, we're worth the big moment. So funny because I thought he's going to come out and wave his arms and do a boobity bobbity goo to go. You're healed and like fly away. And I promised we'd all. But his faith would have been in what? The prophet. And the man or woman who was moved by God and led by God will simply say, let go. God's name be known. It's not me who will assert myself, but I sit back so God can be known even more. Naaman's furious. I traveled all this way. I dealt with your psychotic king who screamed at me, impressed me. He wants something bigger. But I would suggest to you, it's the multiple little things in your life that we build upon each other that makes something significant of us. Because when we're just fighting for the next big event, we become addicted to big events. And we find this great depression, loneliness, anxiety in between the events versus the daily little things that speak joy into our lives. And that even if we have the right idea in mind, my wife and I bought this car the first year we were married in 1989. It was this Honda Accord. It was way more than we could afford, but it was awesome. Except we didn't get the power locks because I'm like, I'm going to save $100 because I can unlock my own car. And we didn't get the power windows because I'm like, I can still do this, you know. And then we weren't going to get the air conditioner, but we we're living in Southern California. And I'm like, well, no, we're getting the air conditioner. We had this car for 16, 17 years. It had like 280,000 miles on it. And it had this really cool thing about it that it would randomly just die. <laughs> it was awesome. And so like when it would die, it, it would like kind of like flood itself, like a bunch of gas got shot into the car. And then like you literally, and some people think I exaggerate. Okay, I do because it's funnier. But in this case, I'm not. You can ask my wife. Like, sometimes we would stop the car and it would flood itself, so you'd have to wait a half hour to start it again. So it made doing errands a whole different thing. 
So there was many times we were all just sitting in the car waiting for it to start again. Or just would die. But I thought, I want a new car, but I want to feel grounded. Lord knows why. Like, I don't, I don't want to be that guy. Like, I want to feel grounded. Like, God, like, like everything shouldn't be so easy. So I'm like, I'm just going to keep this car. Like, Lisa, your car was working fine, but I'll keep driving this car. I think it's good for us. <laughs> Me. I don't know what it was. One day I'm dry, I was coaching football and at the high school and there's like this little hill, just like a two-way road that goes back up to my church. But it's a hill enough that you, it'd be really hard to push a car up the hill. A little bit of traffic right there. I'm stopped at a stop sign, maybe five cars back from the sign. And that car does that beautiful, wonderful thing that I love. It just died. And I'm like, oh no, oh no. And that joy and that peace and that feeling grounded that I was desiring instantly left me. And I'm like, oh no, oh no, oh no. There's no shoulder to turn over to push. I have my, my flip-flops on. I try to get out and push the car. I'm rolling backwards. It was a mess. People start honking. There's nothing like a joy sucker than people honking at you when you can do nothing. Finally, I've backed traffic up all the way because I know in my head, I'm like, 20 minutes and I'm out of here. I'm trying to explain, like, if I let it sit for 20 minutes, people don't care. They're telling me I'm number one, all those kinds of things. <laughs> There's this car that drives by me. It's a European car. It's a really, really nice car. It's a Porsche. Drives by and slows down and says, if you can't drive a car that works, get out of our town. And I'm like, <laughs> I live in this town. Well, I was so mad. I couldn't wait to tell everybody about this jerk. Finally, the car starts. I drive. I mean, I'm at church staff meetings. Like, can you believe this guy? This is the, the joy in my life had been sucked out of me. The next day, I'm at Starbucks. There's a few police officers there. There's one police officer. His name is Tam. I coached all three of his sons in football, but I have a very good relationship with him. I couldn't wait to tell him how um, unjustified. I mean, that just was like, I, I feel angry. This was before social media. I could have taken care of it in one big post. And you'd all been like, wow, Dale's angry, whatever. I didn't have that, so I had to tell people. <laughs> That's funnier than you think. So I'm talking to this police officer, and I'm like, Tam, you won't. He just goes, hey, Dale, how are you? You won't believe it. This happened. Da, 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 da. I'm telling him this story. As I'm telling him this story, the man pulls into the parking lot and starts to walk into Starbucks. And I'm like, Tam, Tam, it's him, it's him. <laughs> and he's like, Dale, I got it. And I'm like, oh, sweet. So the police officer goes up to this guy and he goes, the other day did you yell at somebody? He's like, I don't know. He's like, let me tell you who this man is. And I'm like, who, me? He's like, this man, he's a pastor in our community. He coaches football for our kids. He's telling them all these things, and this man's like, and I'm like behind going, yeah, you're getting it now. Whatever words I probably shouldn't use on the stage, yeah. He walked out of Starbucks without buying his coffee, and I'm like, woo. So Tam looks at me and goes, you feel better? And I'm like, yeah. Oh, no. I got so caught up. And how quickly, that's a small thing in light of eternity and the things we can face. But even when we have the right intentions of being grounded, finding peace, having joy, 
how quickly it just got stolen from me. And I gave it away. And Tam looked at me, this police officer, and said, Dale, I love you. And he's not even a believer, but he goes, don't let people steal your joy so quickly. <laughs> and then I walked out of Starbucks going home. <laughs> Naaman's ticked. And the people around him had something to say to him. Verse 13, Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more than when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him, as his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all of his attendants went back to the man of God and he stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. He is 95% of the way there. This statement he makes is ground shaking. And I think it's ground shaking today for him to say there is only one God. It is earth-shaking in that time because every land had their own God. Every country had their own God. Every people group had their own God. Naaman works for the king. The king is named after the God. He's his right-hand man. He's an Ishkadol, he's, but he's an outcast. He's the one who's saying in a foreign land, now I know there is one, only one God. But his humanity still kicks, it kicks in, and he's like, how much do I owe you? Because even that, there's still a piece of us that's like, yeah, I like this free gift, but what do I still have to do? There must be something there. Let's jump forward just for a brief moment, 800 years. Same place, Samaria. There's a prophet, there's a woman. It seems like this prophet has read this woman's mail because he knows a lot about her. He's, she's saying, like, I don't have a husband. And he says things like, you're right, you've had five husbands. It's the middle of the day. Jesus is sitting with a woman in Samaria in the middle of the day. She's there in the middle of the day because she herself is an outcast. She is not accepted by the local people. He had to talk his people into going through Samaria because Samaria is a place they avoided ethnically. Racially, socially, spiritually. But Jesus wasn't interested in the things that humans do. He was interested in what he does. John 4, we'll pick up the conversation. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus is there to clarify. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshiper the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and the truth. This woman wants to have a debate with him about the location 
of worship. And Jesus changes it into a conversation about the orientation of your heart in worship. What is the orientation of your heart each step along the way? That's the message of Jesus today. We'll go on. Right after I turn the page. Verse 9, or verse 18. But the, may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. He's healed. He offers him money. Um, he doesn't want to pay him money. Hold on. Let me back up. I forgot a part. Here we go. Verse 15. Then Naaman and all of his attendants went back to the man of God, stood before him, and he said, Now I know there's no other God except in Israel, so please accept a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I served, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. If you will not, said Naaman, please let your servant, here's what we all were expecting right here, please let your servant be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry. For your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other God but the Lord. If you've read this before, I almost guarantee you skipped that part. Listen, Naaman's going, if you won't take money, can I bring home two buckets of dirt? Because that's a normal, like, uh, conversation, right? It's like, I won't take Can I carry home dirt? Why? Naaman is still hedging his bets. I know there is one God. But I also might think that there's something special about this place. It is special because something amazing happened there. But just as Jesus said to the woman at the well, it's not about location, it's about the orientation of your heart. But Naaman's like, I'm taking home two dirts with my mule. Once again, so weird because we are nothing like it. And you may go, I've never asked to bring dirt home. And yet sometimes we feel like there are sacred places and then there's not sacred places. And if you really love God, you'll go here and you would not go there. But may the Lord forgive me. He has this problem. May the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Ramon to bow down and he is leaning on my arm and I have to bow there also. When I bow down in the temple of Ramon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Naaman's like, I got to go home. I don't know if you were, when you were younger, if you went to a camp, you made a big decision, something, you know, God showed up and you were so excited. You're like, man, I changed my life. It could be even here at this church. And you're like, but I have to go back to work. I still got carpool. I still got my kids. I still got these issues in my life. I know that God is great, but I got a problem. I got to go back and I got to go be with the king who worships another God, and I have to go to the temple, and he leans on me. What do I do? And Elisha says what? Go in peace. Shalom. What Elisha does not say to him is, well, go outside and pick it. Hold up signs and say, I am anti-Ramon. I'm against the king. He says, no. Shalom. Shalom is peace the absence of, of conflict. But as we talked about, it's also being a peacemaker. 
It also can mean in some circumstances, the breaking of chaos. So what he's telling Naaman, go be a chaos breaker. Not by causing more chaos, but by bringing peace into those situations. What if we stopped in the middle of this year, knowing the things we have talked about as community, and knowing the things that we will talk about, like sexuality, and marriage, and dating, and relationships, and we took a breath, and each day we started by saying, how can I bring shalom into every situation? Not by the absence of engaging, but by the intentionality of peacemaking, the intentionality of chaos breaking. There is a verse in Exodus chapter 20 where God had given Moses to give to the children of Israel the Ten Commandments. In Exodus 20 verse 7 is one that we know well and it says this, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. So often we interpret that verse as don't swear. And there's a bit of that. But the word take in Hebrew is nasah. And nasah means carry or lift. It can be also be said that this verse means do not carry the Lord's name unwell. The positive turn on it is carry God's name well into every situation. Elisha heals Naaman. Naaman's like, I got a problem. Do I avoid it? And he goes, go, just carry his name well into that situation. Carry God's name well. So often we can go, well, that means I can go do whatever I want. How? Yeah, like there's freedom in Christ. The implication, though, was to carry God's name well because you know why? Every ground is sacred ground. This ground is not bigger than God. God's like, it becomes sacred when I am there. I am there, and if I'm in you, so the daily prayer could almost be, God, how do I carry your name well into this conversation, into this situation, into this relationship, into this place at work? And while we're looking for these amazing arm waving and boo and lightning and clouds, God might be saying, just do something simple today. And it's the addition of the multiple little things that happen all day long that starts to turn into some kind of life change. And when you're two weeks in, three weeks in, all of a sudden you've had a month of simple, really good decisions by carrying his name well, you're starting to see God do amazing, amazing things in your life. When we pray, when we engage, we don't always get to see what happens. And to be honest, we often may not get to see what happens. But when we do, it'll change your life. I once was challenged, like, how many people does it take to pray for God to move? Like, I don't know the answer how many, but the more that do pray, or the more they get blessed when he does move. So when you're like, he's not doing anything, so I'm not going to abstain. So when he does do something, you're not going to see it in the first place. So press in. 
Years ago when I was living in Hawaii, last story, I was living in Hawaii and my dad and mom were visiting me there and he got really sick and he needed his appendix out. That is not what you want to do when you're on vacation in Maui. He's like, I got to see the hospital. How many people come to the hospital on vacation? Dad, that's not a goal, but great, good for you. He needs his appendix out. He's right before he goes in, the doctor comes out and she's telling him, this is what we're going to do. I said, doctor, you mind if I just pray for you? Because to carry God's name well, it's just that God is with me in the hospital room. This isn't like this big thing. Can I just pray for you? And to be honest, I might have also been praying to calm my dad down and make sure he was okay. I trusted the doctor, but doctor, can I pray for you? Pray for the doctor, went off, everything went well. He got better, he went home, things were fine. That weekend, there was this couple at my church, and he had just been diagnosed with stage four cancer. When he was at my church and his wife and everybody was like, do you know who that is? And he had played football for the University of Hawaii. People knew him all over the island. I didn't know who he was. I got to know him. He became my friend. We had lunch together every single week. He prayed to receive Christ. At one point, him, he was, his wife was telling my wife a story and they kind of told it to me as well. We asked him, how did you start coming to Waipuna Chapel, which was the name of the church I was the pastor she said, well, I'm a surgical nurse. And while I was in a surgery for a man who was getting his appendix out, the doctor asked me how my husband was doing. I said, I don't know. He's stage four cancer. We're really sad. The doctor then just said, I met this pastor who just prayed for me. He seemed like a nice young guy. You should go to his church. <laughs> so they started a half hour drive every week to come to my church. I had no idea. He was my friend. He came to know Christ. He started inviting other friends to our lunches so that he would say, Dale, tell them about Jesus. Tell them about Jesus. When I moved back, my friend Daryl passed away. But before he died, he called me and said, will you come and do my funeral and tell people how I met Jesus because everybody needs to hear it. Because when God is in you and you carry his name well, those kinds of things come out of you. And every once in a while, you get to see something and you go, holy smokes, that was God. I think I'm good for another 20 years. <laughs> Friends, family, that is there for you. Carry his name well. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and praise you for who you are. God, I pray that we would be a people that carry your name well into the littlest, smallest things, that we wouldn't just look for the big, but that we would look for the small, because you've already done the big. You've freed us. May we be people that respond well to your word this morning. May there be nothing between us and you, God. We love you. In your name, amen.